We are born and bred for competition. We revel in the glory of winning. But when training in self-defense, what does it really mean to win or lose? Find out in today's episode as we deconstruct the Nawaza and Randori piece of our training. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast! Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host Sri Pendikatla, and with me is co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing today, Shihan? I am doing so fantastic. How are you, Sri? Excellent. I'm really excited, as usual, especially in today's podcast. We're going to be talking about winning and losing in NAWAS and what that means in competition versus self-defense. Oh, that's a great subject. I mean, so many people ask me questions about that over the years. And, you know, of course, with all the grappling arts that are out there now, that's a good subject to talk about today. Great. Why don't we launch right into it? Even though we're doing a self-defense martial art, that competition and the competitive nature that people have seems to still be a basis for judgment in the dojo and some kind of factor in terms of ability, both unconsciously or consciously. Maybe if we can just start off with why do people continue to equate success in competition with the ability to defend oneself? So that's a really good question. I I think I want to just start out briefly with putting things in perspective. People who listen to this podcast know I've been doing jujitsu for 36 years now. Half of the people that are listening to this podcast, I'm sure, weren't even born. Back when I started doing this, uh, Nawaza, for those of you listening who don't know what Nawaza is, it's it's the fighting on the ground, right? People call rolling on the on the mats, right? Doing Doing all your submissions and chokes and stuff like you see in uh, MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But anyway, I started out in Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. We had plenty of Nawaza that we did. We all learned ground techniques, the submissions, the bone-breaking techniques, the chokes, all of that as we were coming up through the ranks. You know, once you got into your second rank, we weren't allowed actually to do Nawaza as, as competition until we got into our second rank. But, you know, we learned techniques during our first rank. But, you know, we would we would compete, I would say, maybe twice a month in just Nawaza and probably a couple times a month uh, in, in stand-up. You know, later on, we had a Saturday class that was all just competition-focused. But it was really just a way to help us have practical application for our, tr- for our training. And why I say that is in... Self-defense jiu-jitsu, it's scenario-based, right? So somebody puts a gun against the back of your head, what are you going to you know, do? And then they teach you a technique. So we had just as much of this competition or unrehearsed application-type training with you know, stand-up like judo randori or nawaza on the ground or in weapon defense or in unarmed self-defense. It was all really kind of considered the same thing, right? It was just how do you apply your technique when you don't really know what's going to happen next. And and that seemed to work fine for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. I think when, you know, judo became a well-known sport in the United States, some of the jiu-jitsu people like to cross-train in, in judo because 
you know, there was such a similarity between jujitsu and, and judo and it was fun and they could go to competitions and get medals and those type of things. But it really didn't permeate the jujitsu world. I think it wasn't until the early 90s when Gracie Jiu-Jitsu started in the U.S. And, you know, with their history being from Kosen Judo, which has about 70% of their techniques on the ground, or, or at least did at the, at the beginning of, of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, and they were very, very competition-focused, that people started to question their martial arts, right? They started to say, hey, do mine, does mine work? You know, I don't always fight against people, and I see these people, they fight against people, and they've traveled around to different dojos, and they've beat these people, and so the questions came up. Now, of course, those questions were much stronger for people that did something like karate style than somebody who did jujitsu. But, you know, even in jujitsu, people are like, boy, maybe we should do more of this because we're not really sure that we uh, can actually pull this stuff off. And that, you know, that's one of the things with martial arts that are self-defense focused. You focus your training on learning how to defend yourself in the hopes that you don't have to, right? Just having it in your head practicing it for years in case something comes up and then and then you defend yourself. And so if that situation doesn't arise, you never really, I guess, know in your head, can I really do this? And I think that's why the competitive aspect is so appealing. It gives you at least at some level an answer to that question. So I, I think that's why people equate success in competition with the ability to defend yourself because it's easier to define that success than it is to define the success of self-defense. You mentioned a couple of times in your last answer about competition within your own dojo. How does that compare and contrast to like a sanctioned competition, like such as a Naga tournament or, or, or something across different dojos? Sure. When I was learning, which is what I was referring to when I was learning jujitsu at the first jujitsu dojo I, I trained at, you know, we just competed in the dojo, right? So anybody of any ranks would get out there and let's say we're, you know, because we're addressing Nawaza today, we'd get out there and we would just get down on the knees, take a bow, slap and and go, right? We just try to roll around and use our techniques just like you'd see in a regular, you know, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu dojo today, you know, knowing that we all had the same root of, of our systems. There wasn't really a... a winning or losing. I mean, obviously you had tapped out or, you, you know, or you didn't tap out or, or whatever, but uh, it didn't really, you know, it wasn't sort of something that said, oh, if you do this extremely, extremely well, then you can get promoted faster. There, there wasn't anything like that associated because it was only part of the training, right? You had to do good at that. You had to do good at unrehearsed unarmed self-defense, unrehearsed armed self-defense, uh, judo type randori where you tried to throw each other, you know, all of that held equal weight um, when we were doing, you know, sort of the unrehearsed versions uh, of that. So that's what it was like when I was uh, learning. So what does it mean if you win or lose in class? How do you define winning or losing and what, what, is, what is the meaning behind it? Sure. Um, so I can tell you what it, what it should mean. Typically, if you are going to be choked or submitted in some way, two things have happened. Number one, one of the practitioners has either made a mistake or left an opening. And number two, the other practitioner has recognized that mistake or opening and has taken advantage of it in order to, you know, submit or choke or, or whatever the other person. 
while people are rolling around on the ground, they're constantly moving in and out of positions, either correctly or incorrectly. And it's sort of up to the other person or, you know, vice versa to see those, uh, to see those openings, those opportunities. It's called suki in, in Japanese to find that moment that you can take advantage of, of your partner. And why that's important is jujitsu is based off of that, right? So if a smaller, weaker person is to protect themselves against a larger, stronger person, they certainly can't do it with strength, right? You can't go strength to strength. Physics says, you know, the stronger is going to win. So you have to be aware of and look for the openings and the mistakes that that other person makes that you can take advantage of that will then give you, you know, superiority over, over that person's strength. So I really think that's all it means, um, winning and losing. If you lose all the time, and I mean literally all the time, uh, then you're not picking up on something, right? You're not either picking up on the fact that you're making repetitive mistakes or you're not picking up on the fact that the other person is making mistakes and leaving an opening. I don't see too many people that lose literally all the time, right? So they may win or lose to more to one percentage or the other uh, because they may be better at those two types of recognition. But I doubt anybody loses literally all the time. If they are, then it's a problem with the instruction, right? The instruction is certainly not making sure that that person um, is is able to not make mistakes and is able to recognize the the opportunities. Why do people still feel like they're you know losers or, or dejected when they get tapped out in class? Well, I think that can be for two reasons. Um, number one is the one we hope we don't have, which is your peers or your instructors somehow make you feel like, you know, you're a loser or you're unintelligent or something to that effect, or you're not trying hard or, or something like that. And that's something that, you know, uh, should not be um, in, in the dojo. And that's up to the instructor to control that. Uh, the other thing is it's just built in, right? The other piece of it is just built into the individual. I mean, we don't like losing, you know, in anything. We don't like losing in business. We don't like uh, losing your girlfriend to another guy. We don't like losing car races, right? You know, it's, it's just built into human nature that, um, you know, you don't want to be dominated by somebody else. Uh, I'm sure it goes back to, you know, primal times. But I think that's just it's in everybody. I do believe with time and with the right attitude adjustments, you can get to a place where you can be OK with with losing. You can just look at the situation and try to logically think about why that happened and, you know, make corrections and, and move forward, realizing that, you know, when two people are going to contest each, against each other, you're already going into that situation agreeing that you will accept a 50% chance of losing. I, I also don't think a lot of people do that either, right? I think a lot of people go in there thinking they're on the other 50%, right? They're, they're on the winning side. But, you know, anytime you have a a contest or an altercation with another person, doesn't matter how well you're trained or not, you're going in with a 50% chance of losing. So I think that's why people kind of feel that way. Right. So if you look at it from the other perspective, let's say some, you know, punk comes off the street, walks into the door and starts in the dojo and within the first week taps you out. And let's say you've been in the dojo for a year, two years, even longer than that. What does that mean about you know, the more experienced student's ability to defend 
himself or herself? So this is a really, really important question. I, I want to address this in, in two parts. I, I, I want to address first the, the situation, and then I want to address, you know, what does it mean about the person's ability to defend themselves? So first of all, I don't think that that situation should happen. Um, I'm, I, I really want to be adamant about that. I, there is no reason why somebody should walk into the door of a dojo as a new student and even be allowed to do Nawaza. I, I definitely do not agree with that. Uh, there's safety issues. There's all kinds of things, right? We don't know anything about this person at all. They could, you know, I've interviewed a ton of new students when they come in. I said, hey, do you have any martial art experience? And they say no. And then later you find out absolutely they do. Or they don't consider to be, you know, a lifelong career of wrestling to be the martial arts. So they don't say that, right? So it's it causes a safety situation. Um, you know, my my opinion is when someone comes in off the street, uh, you know, we give them a standard first kind of class. They, you know, learn the etiquette in, in the dojo and how we operate. We train them on techniques uh, on the ground, the way that we do them so that they understand some of the safety aspects. And then you know, once they we think they're ready to do some nawaza, they nawaza with like the the instructors a, a few times just to make sure that this person, you know, has the right attitude, realizes it's just a training uh, situation and and that sort of thing. So that really shouldn't happen. I I definitely want all of especially the Kobukai instructors to to think about that. Right? It is is it's really. Uh, you know, a privilege to be able to get in there and do Nawaza with the other students. So you don't get that privilege until we know who you are and we and we trust you. Now on to the second piece. What does it mean about my ability to defend myself? I don't think it means anything because I don't think you were defending yourself, right? If you're that student and you're, you know, whatever, you're a blue belt or a purple belt and some new guy comes in and you decide for some reason Nawaza is going to happen and and you get tapped out, you were doing an exercise. You were not defending yourself. Defending yourself means you have the the option to do anything you know, right? Any type of striking, you know, poking, you can bite the guy, you can, you know, hit him with a garbage can lid, you can do your highest level techniques on this brand new guy. That that would be self-defense, right? You you feel threatened and therefore you can defend yourself. This is an agreement when people do Nawaza. They're like, okay, we're going to wrestle around on the ground. We basically agree that we're going to choke and submit each other and that when I tap out, you're going to stop doing it so I don't get injured, right? So that's absolutely not a self-defense situation. I think when a newer person, like say we've got a person that's been there for a month or so and now, you know, or two months and we're like, you know, we trust this person and we're going to let him do Nawaza now. Uh, and you get out there and he's a white belt and he goes out with, say, a blue belt. And that that blue belt needs to understand that he has absolutely no idea what this guy is going to do. Right. He He's only been there for a month or two and he could do anything. So he needs that blue belt needs to be completely on the defensive for the entire time, not trying to necessarily submit this person, but just keeping everything tight, keeping closed you know, not making any silly moves or mistakes again until he, he feels confident with what, how this other person is going to uh, behave. Um, I think that's the right way to do it. I, I think it's not in any way attached to the ability to defend yourself. Um, that's the smart way to indoctrinate new students into doing Nawaza in class. Okay, that's, that's good with the philosophy about that. 
let's talk a little bit about the different ranks and people with experience and less experience to continue on the you know on the track you're talking about okay so if we have a let's say a brown belt and they're doing nawaza against a yellow belt and mm-hmm. this yellow belt taps them out and it becomes more and more frequent does that mean that the brown belt isn't as deserving to have that keeping that belt or or something like that or what does that mean no, it, I, you know, in my opinion, is nobody nobody goes down in rank. Um, you continue to learn and you move up in rank. And if somebody's a brown belt, they did all the things necessary to earn that brown belt. Um, you know, if the school is a good school and legitimate, right? If they're out there with the yellow belt and yellow belt taps them out, uh, that simply means that what we talked about before, the brown belt left an opening, the yellow belt recognized it, and did an a correct and appropriate jujitsu technique. So there is there is no escape and no counter for a perfectly executed jujitsu technique. You can only counter or escape from a technique when it's not done perfectly, and there is something wrong that you can take advantage of in order to in order to escape. So anybody of any rank, white belt and 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 above, right, can execute a jujitsu technique perfectly. Right? It may not happen all the time, but they can do it. And when it's executed perfectly, nobody of any rank is going to get out of that thing. So that can happen. Now, if it starts to happen a lot, right? So this yellow belt is constantly um, tapping out this brown belt. Then the problem is with the brown belt. There's no question about it. The, the brown belt is leaving openings that the yellow belt is taking advantage of. Now, I want to put that a little bit into perspective because, as you know, we talk about reality all the time at Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. Um, I'm talking about a yellow belt and a brown belt that are probably relatively around the same size, right, give or take 20 pounds. Um, you know, you put a yellow belt around a 250-pound guy and put him with a brown belt that weighs 130 pounds, there is a possibility that they're going to be able to do these techniques to the brown belt through sheer, sheer size, weight, and strength. And that, you know, you can't stop because that is just the reality of the world. Once there's that much of a disparity in size, you know, physics are incredibly in the larger person's favor. And when you start teaching that larger person techniques, uh, they're certainly able to execute them, right? We all have had our enjoyable Nawaza sessions with uh, Big Dave, you know, it's it's a struggle. It is hard. Uh, and I can tell you right now, I have a couple of big guys in my dojo here uh, in Florida. And, um, you know, they're both about six foot, mm, I would say three or four, you know, probably 200 pounds, 205, you know, so they're in shape. Uh, and I've been doing this for a long time and I have a hard time with them. You know, every once in a while, they'll catch me and tap me out. The rest of the time, even when they don't tap me out, I'm I'm fighting, right? I'm really fighting. There's just such a large size and strength uh, disparity, and that's just the way it is. But I wouldn't want it any different than that because if I have to go out and defend myself in the street, I got to know what I'm getting myself into, right? I have to make some choices when it comes to, you know, uh, defending myself and my family as to how I'm going to approach things depending on how big and strong this other this other person is. But if we're just talking pure Nawaza, um, I would say the brown belt, who's probably got, you know, three or four years experience, uh, is is making mistakes that need to be, you know, looked at carefully by the instructor and and corrected. Let's talk a little bit about 
feelings. Um, feelings. <laughs> nothing more than feelings. <laughs> I mean, we're human beings, and sure. we bring our emotions pretty much everywhere we go. It's kind of hard to disengage from that. And doing Nawaza, which is so almost primal and um, physical that you know it's it's hard to divorce that. So my question is around what should you feel when well I'll tell you what people do feel. So when when you have a great day and you're tapping everybody out and you feel great, you feel kind of your ego's boosted and you feel kind of good about yourself. And then on the on the flip side when you're getting tapped out by everybody including a white belt and and um, new people and, 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 and you're just having a lousy day, you just feel pretty bad about yourself and a little frustrated. Is that normal? Is that natural? Or should we be doing something else to kind of control that? I think it's, it's completely natural. I think everybody goes, goes through that, you know, and I, and I will say it's, it's even, it's even demoralizing, right? You, you really feel like, boy, I put in a lot of time and a lot of training and, you know, get my bumps and bruises and, and I really thought I was going to be, you know, better by now. Um, I, you know, it, it definitely makes you feel a little bit demoralized. It makes you question your, you know, your ability or, you know, your, your fortitude, um, or whatever. And, and I do think that that's natural. And I think that's why, really, you know, good instructors need to pay very close attention to that because, I can tell you from my experience, but I've also done a lot of research on this. And so I can say it's pretty much the experience across the board in the jujitsu and judo world that the number one reason that students quit is because of not doing well in the competitive side, uh, especially in Nawaza. It's really the number one reason that that people quit. Um, you know, those people that quit in the first month, a lot of that's about is, you know, I didn't think it was going to be this hard and I don't like getting bruises. But once you're past that, people that are in there, they're pretty serious in their training. I think they uh, put too much weight on the competitive side. I think they get demoralized when they when they lose. Um, you know, they have these huge mood swings between just what you described. You know, you're tapping everybody out as the best day in the world and then you can't do anything against anybody and it feels horrible. Um, so. And as instructors and as students, you know, that have some rank, we have to be really, really aware that that is the number one reason that jujitsu students quit. And we have to keep constantly reminding and coaching people that this is a training exercise. That is a training exercise. Um, it's not self-defense. It's just a portion of what you need to know, a portion of the self-defense. Uh, it's about things went really bad on the street. You ended up on the ground. You have to roll around and take care of yourself, right? So we really have to remind them of that. And one of the ways that I like to do that, and I think instructors could do this more often, is have people do Nawaza and have the goal, have the win, have the you know de facto tap out be the person's ability to escape from the other person on the ground. And that would be a totally different thing, right? So... You know, you and me, we get on the ground three and we grab onto each other and then we start. And our main goal is to completely disengage from each other and get up, stand up and move away. 
Now, I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to try to keep you from escaping and you're going to try to keep me from escaping. So certain choices will be made. But if that was the goal, if we just kept telling everybody that the goal is to stop wrestling on the ground and to get up and get away from the person, it would take on a completely different meaning for people. Instead, what we emphasize is your ability to arm bar somebody or to you know, do a knee bar or something. And all that does really is it keeps you engaged for a lot longer period of time than you would ever want to, you know, in the street. So I suggest that every once in a while, you know, maybe every couple of months that exercise gets done just to straighten people's heads out and really understand that the winning and losing, you know, is all about what I was talking about before those, those uh, recognition of, of mistakes and openings and not making you know, openings and mistakes, but the real, you know, the real goal is to not be on the ground at all and to, and to try to get away. So, you know, with, with that type of approach, I think it might help some of those feelings. Um, but I don't think that's ever going to go away. I felt it many, 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 many times. And I still have to check my ego at the door sometimes, right? Here I am, I'm, I'm an instructor and I get out there with one of my guys and he taps me out and I have to just let it go. Right. I just have to be like, all that really happened there had nothing to do with me or him. Right. All that happened there is I made a move. It wasn't correct. You know, it left an opening. The other person saw that and took advantage of it. And the reason he saw it and took advantage of it is because I taught him how to see it and take advantage of it. All he's doing is doing exactly what I asked him to do. So, you know, I have to check my ego at the door too. And so I think everybody needs to. Everybody needs to, you know, kind of back away from, you know, saying their self-worth has to do with how many people they can tap out uh, in a self-defense jujitsu style, because that is not what we're all about. Continuing on that track, I've witnessed this, I've observed this, and I have uh, experienced this, where if you're a lower belt, you're kind of eyeing the see more senior belts, the blue belts or the, or the brown belts and saying, hey, if I can tap this guy out, uh, that means I might you know, might be pretty good or something. Uh, and then on the flip side, do you, if you're a blue belt and you're, you know, trying to move ahead and trying to get into a higher belt or even from a, a brown belt into a black belt, is there some level of expectation that you're going to, um, you know, mop uh, the mats with, uh, with the rest of the dojo? And is that any kind of expectation there that um, is required to progress? Uh, so there's nothing required to progress. Um, I think, you know, you've been around the school for a while, and I, I think you can look across the ranks and see that over time you get to the black belt level. And most of the time, you know, they're they're pretty good in the competitive side of things, right? Yeah, they get tapped out from time to time. But in, in general, you know, they're pretty tough to deal with uh, if you're a blue belt or yellow belt, you know. If you're a brown belt, you're probably getting close to black belts, gets a little bit more even. And then, you know, that scale kind of gets smaller and smaller as you go down the ranks, right? So the disparity in, in technique and ability between a black belt and a white belt is huge. But the, you know, disparity and, and difference between a white belt and a yellow belt is not that much. So there's, you know, way more chances of that sort of uh, white belt, yellow belt exchange of tap outs or the yellow belt blue belt exchange of tap outs than there is, you know, a black belt, white belt. That being said, we have a rule in our school and I don't know what other jujitsu schools do. Maybe they do something like this. I, I hope so. Cause I think there's like a, you know, a moral side to this in our school, we will only use uh, the submission type techniques 
from the ranks that that person we're going with already has. So if I'm going with a blue belt, I am only going to tap them out or try to with blue belt, yellow belt, and white belt techniques. I'm not going to tap them out with brown belt or black belt techniques simply because it's not fair. They haven't learned them yet. They don't, they don't know those techniques. It gives me a significant, significant advantage, which is why it's not self-defense, right? Because if it was self-defense, I'd use everything I know. I, I'm going to win no matter what. But I'm, it's a training exercise. I'm, you know, a, a more senior rank is trying to help the other person learn and, and you know, become better and recognize openings and, and mistakes and maybe take the stuff that they know right now from their charts and put it into application, I think there there's more of that that should be happening than um, you know somebody that's got a higher rank just going out there and using whatever they know in order to you know quote unquote win a a, a Nawaza match. That's pretty much all the questions I had. Just you know, real quick, if you want to summarize, um, you know, what can instructors and students do day in and day out to maintain the philosophy that you've developed here, keeping in in line with the reality of self-defense versus the the rule set and uh, written or unwritten agreement between uh, you know two two people in a dojo. Sure. Um, so here's a couple things I think would be really important when we're talking about you know the competitive aspect of training, and and that's what I'm talking about. I'm I'm not talking about people that want to be competitors and go to grappling tournaments or BJJ tournaments or judo tournaments or MMA tournaments, right? That's a whole different type of training. I'm talking about people that are focused on learning self-defense and feeling confident with their self-defense abilities. So here's a couple of things I'd like everybody to remember. Number one, and I'm just going to address NAWAZA, but it applies to all the other competitive aspects. Number one, NAWAZA is a training exercise. It is there to train you how to deal with situations that are going to happen if you end up on the ground. There are specific things that you're learning to do to get somebody off the top of you, to reverse positions, to sweep somebody so you can take a more dominant position, to escape from being held down, to keep yourself and your you know, your body safe from being struck while you're on the ground, uh, the ability to move away, escape, and, and stand up and, and get away is really key. And then a lot of the um, submissions, especially the ones that have to do with things that you do on the arms. So things like Udigarami or reverse Udigarami or Jujigatami or Udigatami, you know, any of those type of things, Sankakugarami, all of those have to do truly with disarming somebody that has a knife in their hand or a gun in their hand. So everybody has to keep that in mind. That's a big number two. There is no reason at all that you're going to be rolling around on the ground with somebody and then you're going to jump on their chest and you're going to do an udigarami. Like there's just no reason. If I'm on top, like in a mune type position or mount and I can do an udigarami, that also means I could get up and escape. The only reason you would ever really be doing that in real life is if they were holding a knife in their hand and they're trying to stab you in the chest, then it makes perfect sense for me to do an udigarami and break that arm so they can no longer, you know, stab me. The reason we practice and do nawaza and allow you that opportunity to get in there and 
try to get these submission techniques against people who are being difficult and are trying to do it to you is for you to learn the timing, to see the openings, to feel how much effort and strength it really takes to do that so that when you do happen to be on the ground and, you know, maybe you got somebody in guard and he's holding a knife against your throat, then you do a jujigatami, you know why you're doing a jujigatami, right? You're, you're pulling that away from your throat and you're breaking his arm. I, I really think people have to keep that in mind. Third, the third thing I think people um, need to keep in mind is it truly, truly, truly does not matter if you win or lose. Um, it matters that you train. That, that is really the biggest piece. You could roll around, I'm going to just make it up, a hundred times on the ground with people. And I'm going to say, you know, you lost 60% of the time and won 50, uh, 40% of the time. All that really matters is that you wrestled around on the ground with somebody a hundred times. Because if you go in the street and you get on the ground, you don't want to be the person that has no experience there. You want to be the person that's been on the ground a hundred times. So that when that happens and that person that probably isn't even trained, you know, is on you or doing whatever, you're not in an unfamiliar place. You're in a place you've been a hundred times. Well, if you think about how many times you do it by the time you're a black belt, it's thousands of times. This just gives you such an advantage over a person when you happen to be in a ground, um, you know, self-defense type situation. So again, winning or losing is great if that makes you feel a certain way. But what's more important is the repetitive training exercise so that when you run into it in a real place in the street, you've just got a lot of, lot of experience. Okay. So you also got to remember things like, if I'm going with you, Sri, and I see you about to do a scissor sweep, I see that hip motion, or I see you back up from guard and I know you're going to be do knee push, we're talking the same language, right? I see you take that position. I know it's going to be knee push. I know how to now escape from what you're about to do or thwart what you're about to do. Unless that guy who's beating you up on the street just came from his jujitsu class and was just working on knee push from guard. He has no idea what you're doing whatsoever. He has no idea specifically, technically how to escape from those things that you're doing. He may just do it by luck or he may do it by strength or whatever, but he has no idea what you're doing. And that's what gives you the significant advantage. And that's why Nawaza training is so important. The enemies aren't in class. They're in the street. So, um, so that that's a real a real big piece of it. Um, it's also really important to understand when you're being dominated in Nawaza. So you can go out there with whatever intention and suddenly you just realize either that person is really good that day and you're not or the person's just faster or stronger or whatever the case may be. And you have to make the right set of decisions. When I start getting dominated by somebody who's either better or stronger, I move into defensive only. I'm not trying to tap this person. I'm trying to just be on the defensive. And I can tell you this works. Um, you know, I've seen several, uh, you know, competitive type situations where the person just defended them the, themselves for the entire time. So a five minute round, they did not get tapped and they never even really attempted to tap the other person. I can Consider that to be completely successful. That's a completely successful Nawaza training session. It didn't have anything to do with, you know, did I tap that other person or didn't I tap that person? So I think 
as you move up through the ranks, everybody needs to think about what is happening right now and how do I need uh, to react to it. And then finally, you have instructors for a reason. All the students out there, you have instructors for a reason. Um, and that is if you are having a problem with something and if you are leaving openings, if you are getting caught all the time, you're getting submitted all the time, or you're unable to find those openings so that you can do the submissions, you need to bring those specific situations to your instructor and tell them, I need help with this, right? Instead of just letting it take over your emotion and having you just being like, man, I suck and you know, I don't even know if I want to continue jujitsu. It's obvious I'm not progressing. Everybody's kicking my ass. That is not fixing the problem in any way, right? Fixing the problem is going to the instructor a million times if necessary and getting them to fix what's wrong. That is what you are paying them for. So, you know, my, my, my desire for all the students that are out there is use the instructor's have, have them help you fix the things that you're having problems with so that you don't have to have these negative feelings about what you're doing. And then my note to the instructors is listen to this podcast like 50 times. The things I'm telling you about are the things you should be telling your students. You know, I'm, I'm spelling out for you what NAWAZA is and why we do it how it should be controlled, and how you want to have your students feel about it. If we don't do that as instructors, we're really doing a disservice uh, to the students. So I know I got a little serious there at the end, but that's really important to me. I don't want students that are, are going to leave because of something that's, you know, uh, a quarter of the stuff that they train on. Um, and, and I want people to feel good about what they're doing and feel like they're learning. So I want everybody to you know, to take advantage of what I'm talking about, mainly because when you do Nawaza somewhat decently, it's pretty fun. I mean, you get out there and you're rolling around and you're having a great time and, you know, maybe you're tapped out once in a while and maybe the other person taps out or maybe it's just a great roll and nobody gets tapped out, but you don't feel bad about it. It's energizing. It feels good. It's exhausting. You're sweating, but you, you feel like, man, that was a that was a blast. I can't wait till the next time we do that. And if you're not feeling that, we, we, have, to, we have to fix that. So... That's how I feel about Nawaza and what it means uh, with your, you know, true ability to defend yourself. Well, thank you very much, Shihan. You are very welcome. <laughs>